The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did our medieval ancestors think about sex? How did the belief that sex was sinful sit alongside the notion that it was also necessary to balance your bodily humours? And what did they know about contraception? In her new book, The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages, Catherine Harvey sheds light on the surprisingly familiar sex lives of ordinary medieval people. She joined us recently to explain more, and putting the questions to Catherine was our digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Please be aware that this podcast contains some graphic sexual descriptions and discussions of sexual violence. Thanks so much for joining us, Catherine. And to start with, I hoped we could hear a little from you on the common preconceptions of sex in the Middle Ages that you most often come up against when writing or researching about this subject. Yeah, so I think that there are two things really that people have tended to say. One is they've very much got this, I think it comes from Game of Thrones, from that sort of thing, this sort of idea of the Middle Ages is it's all very violent. And then there's, I suppose, the other side seems to be I think it comes from the idea that everybody in the Middle Ages was religious or at least very much under the thumb of the church and so that they're all sort of sexually repressed um, but at the same time really lustful. So all this stuff about sort of chastity belts and you're almost a sort of a carry-on version of the Middle Ages. Definitely. Uh, and I certainly came to your book with some of those preconceptions too. Um, and I hope we could touch on what you do in your introduction, which is a look, a little look at the terminology or lenses that we use today and how much of that is applicable in the period that you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is really hard about looking at something like this in the distant past is that the, the language and the concepts really have changed. So words that we now consider to be sort of really core to our understanding of sexuality, like, I don't know, heterosexuality, homosexuality, a lot of them are 19th century inventions. And so it's very hard to map them back onto the Middle Ages. A lot of people have suggested that maybe we should think about medieval sex more in terms of acts than identities. You know, it's more about what you do than how you feel about it maybe and that we should be talking about sort of men who have sex with women or men who have sex with men or sort of different types of acts the importance of virginity and celibacy that you know there are different terminologies that we think about in terms of this the one of the concepts that was really important to them that I think is less important to us was the idea that sex pretty much always involves a passive and an active partner and that's something that in what we would now call heterosexual sex, tends to be about, so sex is something a man does to a woman. But we actually see, even when they talk about same-sex sex, they tend to try and force couples into those roles. So definitely when you get prosecutions of men who have sex with men, often they talk in terms of the passive and active partner and the active one gets um, punished more harshly. And a lot of the very, very few cases of women who have sex with women who end up in the court. But a lot of them are still constructed in terms of one woman passing herself off as a man or taking the man's part. And so that's completely alien to us. 
I see. So that's a bit of a readjustment then when thinking about the attitudes of of medieval people to a lot of these subjects. Um, But I also wanted to bring in now uh, the church because it's inescapable just how much of an impact the church and Christianity or religion has on this subject in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, as we all know, the medieval church was really, really powerful in Europe in the Middle Ages. And most people were, at least sort of broadly speaking, Roman Catholics. Although I do, yeah, talk in the book about other religions as well. But that was the dominant idea and um so a lot of it goes back to the bible and in particular to the story of adam and eve and to the idea that somehow before the fall sex would have been sinless and in fact there are all sorts of mad discussions about what sex would have been like in the garden of eden and some people think it would have been much much better although unfortunately eve ate that apple too quickly and they never got the chance to find out um but once she's done that and the fall of man and sex is inherently sinful, according to the church after that. So that's a really important thing for medieval people. Um, also, of course, the church's obsession with sort of virginity and sexual purity and the, the real sort of focus in the later Middle Ages on virgin saints, the Virgin Mary being the most obvious example, but there are lots and lots of them. Um, and uh, yeah, so sort of for some people... That that's the only really good way to be. Although I think the church does take a sort of a, a fairly positive approach to marriage, and, and that's that's good too, if not quite as good. Um, and then there is also this interesting strand about sort of um, saints like Mary Magdalene, who was a former prostitute who repented and became a follower of Christ. And I think in the later Middle Ages, offers hope to a lot of Christians because if she could be redeemed, well, maybe so can they. So I think a lot of people have got the impression that it's all sort of sin, sin, sin. And there is a lot of sin, but it, it is a bit more complicated than that. So I hope it comes across in the book. Absolutely. I, I found that really fascinating that there's obviously this idea of it being sinful behaviour and something to repent for. But also there's this contrast with other attitudes that sex was associated with health or with well-being. And the idea that sex could be good for you too or to help balance your humours. Yeah, and as you say, inevitably, because everything in medieval medicine comes back to humours, it's very much seen in, in a humoral context. And sex, I suppose, is almost a form of excretion. So it can be a way to help you balance those humours, um, which means that, yeah, regular sex is good for you, according to, to medical theory. You mustn't have too much or too little. Um, you know, there, there are stories about, um, it's mainly clerics who die of having not having sex, there's several stories about sort of yeah bishops and things who die of celibacy. Thomas Beckett was told by his doctor apparently that he should give up celibacy or he would die. And of course, being a good saint, he went well, I'll chance it. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, there are stories about, and it is usually men who die of having too much sex, and so that can be that can be equally bad for you. So yeah, moderation is the key, at least in medical terms. Right. And, and there was a difference as well in the beliefs of how it affected men and women, wasn't there? The idea that men were hot and dry and women were cold and wet. How did these affect ideas about sex? Yeah. So men and women are sort of, as you say, different in their humoral complexions. And that means that I, I guess men, because they're already hot and dry, if they expel too much semen, then they get, they're sort of, they're drying themselves out. And there are literally stories about men who sort of have too much sex and their their brains dry up and their eyes shrink to the size of currants and they, that's that's what gets them. Um, women, because they're innately cold and they're warmed by sex, to, it seems they seem to think that it's difficult for a woman to have too much sex and that sort of 
their their humoral biology makes them innately lustful. Um, because we're, you know, whereas we very much got the idea of this Victorian idea of the sort of women being frigid and not really liking sex, the medieval idea is very much that yeah, their biology makes them very lustful that they want to have lots of sex. Um, the danger for women of not having sex is that you don't expel enough seeds and then it sort of blocks up in your body and, and you die of suffocation of the womb. Um, so it's like, yeah, nasty stuff. <laughs> Yes, there are lots of interesting theories there that I'm sure we'll continue to hear more about. But you've mentioned marriage and how marital sex was viewed already. Um, but if we can go a step before that, how easy or difficult was it to sort of get together or date? How did people do it? Yeah, I mean, this is something we probably don't know as much about as we would like. Um, I suppose a lot of people have got the idea that it was sort of all arranged marriages and all very young people getting married. And I think one of the things that I found actually was that apart from maybe at the very highest levels of society, most people have quite a lot of agency and most people don't get married until they're at least in their late tw- teens and sometimes their early 20s is, is, you know, the average in parts of Europe in the Middle Ages. And so there are lots of considerations about sort of what your family wants. And it seemed very important that you marry somebody who your family approves of. But things like... Do you like the person? Are you attracted to the person? Do do matter? I mean, uh, I think probably they share our idea that you shouldn't marry purely based on lust because that's not a basis for a long term relationship. But uh, the idea that you should like your you like your partner and consent is a very important idea in medieval marriage. So you know, and that they're they're quite uncomfortable actually for the most part with marriages with big age gaps. Um, and often, if they do, if elite couples, if elite families do marry very young children, they tend to hold off consummation until they're released into their teens. So a lot, say a lot of those ideas about sort of forced marriages of very young children, that really was quite unusual. Okay, so another instance of things contrasting them with popular preconceptions, as you said at the top of the interview. But, it, but if marital sex was viewed through a more positive lens, what were the ramifications or consequences for those who had extramarital sex? Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong because I guess medieval the medieval authorities have very much got the idea that they should be controlling people's sex lives, both for their own good, because, you know, if you're a sinner, you need to be made to repent, but also for the sake of society, because one bad apple spoils the entire barrel and because potentially God will punish the entire society. So, yeah, if you, if you have premarital sex, if you have an affair... If you commit incest, um, you know, any of those things can can land you up in the courts and being subjected to all sorts of punishments. And they range quite widely over the period and from place to place. You know, some places you'll get off with a fine. So sometimes you might end up being executed, although that's quite rare. Um, I mean, there are also sort of um, other complications. So, for example, with premarital sex, when people are sort of warned not to, one of the reasons is because despite the church's sort of attempts to make everybody get married in church in the middle ages you can get married just by exchanging vows with each other and then the inevitable happens people exchange vows they have sex and then one of them decides actually they don't want to be married and then you end up in court with being sued for breach of promise um usually inevitably it's women sue men but sometimes it is the other way around and yeah so it's it's, it's sort of fraught with all sorts of dangers (laughs) Yes, a fascinating aspect in your book is the impotence examinations. Can we hear more from you on those? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, sex is seen as a really important part of medieval marriage to the point that if you are incapable of having sex, in theory, your spouse can sue for an annulment on the grounds of your inability to have sex. And it pretty much is always women sue men. Basically, the attitude is that you know that, that there are very rare cases where women 
uh, are sued because they're frigid, whereas women sue their husbands for impotence because they want to be allowed to marry somebody else and have children. Um, and then, yeah, people have to undergo these physical examinations. Um, and sometimes that's done by experts. So sometimes it's doctors or midwives. Sometimes it's prostitutes. Um, you know, people who for various reasons are seen as experts in the film. And they will do all sorts of set of tests to try and see whether somebody can be aroused, whether they can maintain an erection, comment on the size of their genitals, all that sort of thing. Um, sometimes the neighbours do it. There's a case in York in the, I think it's the early 15th century, where about a dozen of this man's neighbours all sort of have a good look at him and, uh, and comment on the size of his genitals in relation to their husband's or their own. And, I mean, it sounds really funny, but it must have been absolutely mortifying. That that chap does actually prove his, his, um, prove his abilities and they're made to stay married. But it's, yeah, it's bizarre. Right. Certainly to us looking back, it's quite eyebrow raising. Um, you've mentioned sex workers a couple of times. So could you say a little more about medieval attitudes towards sex work and those who sold sex? Yeah. So I mean, at the most basic level, obviously it's a sin. Um, and the church frowns upon it and the church really wants to, a lot of the church policy is about sort of making women repent. They set up things called Madeline hospitals and they try and make people, women go in there to repent. But I think more broadly, society was sort of wrestling with the same problem that we still are. Is it better to try and ban this or is it better to accept that it will happen? Particularly given what medieval people thought about sort of men and their need to have sex for health. Um, did you did you sort of allow it to happen and regulate it? And so we see a shift over the course of the Middle Ages from banning being the normal thing and expelling sex workers from cities um, to gradually towards the end of the 13th century and increasingly in the 14th and 15th, we see towns having licensed brothels and official red light districts and so women are allowed to work from those and they are regulated by the city authorities um and in some ways that works really well um but there are also a lot of problems uh, as, as you see in the book you know and unsurprising ones you know violence by clients exploitation by pimps trafficking but i think what is really interesting is actually is that within these regulated brothels they do try and deal with problems like that. So, you know, we've maybe got this idea that sex workers in the Middle Ages are just the lowest of the low and to say of what they get. And actually, they didn't seem to have behaved like that. They do seem to have gone, they would prosecute men who um, beat up prostitutes. They, they would, um, you know, to try, to try and introduce regulations to stop exploitation. So, yeah, it, it's really interesting, really quite complicated. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Stories about women who make really unpleasant sounding potions. Some of them are just herbal. Some of them involve sort of menstrual blood and semen and all sorts of things you probably don't want to drink. Um, that some people think that if you, when you take communion, you keep, keep the communion wafer in your mouth and then you kiss somebody with the, that's still in your mouth, you'll make them fall in love. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra.
what you've said so far, it does seem like women had a little more agency than is generally assumed in the period. And I wanted to ask about how much of that, uh, how much that meant for the obvious consequences of sex in terms of reproduction. Um, what was known or understood about sex and reproduction, and how much did that affect relationships? Was there any contraception available? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot in medieval medical texts about sort of reproduction and and how to get pregnant and how not to get pregnant. I think probably one of the most surprising things for a lot of people is how much emphasis there was on female sexual pleasure as being necessary for conception because they think the sort of the general theory is that both the man and the woman have to produce seed and they have to mix. Um, and so, yeah, you, you both need to to orgasm to, to enjoy that. So, so there's a lot about a lot about that in, in um, medical texts. Um, they do all sorts of complicated tests in terms of fertility and infertility. They've got all sorts of theories about how you should have sex if you want to have a son or a daughter. Um, all sorts of theories about when you shouldn't have sex. Um, yeah, you can do tests for infertility, and actually, they're surprisingly open to the idea that it might be the man who's the problem. We t- we tend to think of thanks to Henry VIII. I think we tend to think you know the woman always gets the blame, but actually, that's that's not strictly true. And then yeah, contraception. People did use contraception. Um, there's a surprising amount in medical texts about coitus interruptus. Churchmen are quite worried about the fact that there might be a lot of that going on. Um, there are all sorts of weird contraceptives, some of them very much based on humoral theory that sort of very much are thought through and make sense in terms of the medical theory of the day. Some of them seem a bit weird. There's a story about a woman who has had loads of children and then she swallows a bee and never gets pregnant again. Don't think any of us should try that one. Um and then, yeah, abortion also is something that comes up in the court records. Um, people taking potions, usually people take sort of purgatives, um, sometimes go to the doctors and sort of claim they're suffering from chronic constipation or something to get a purgative that they hope will uh, cause an abortion. Quite a lot of stories about people striking women in the belly to try and produce a, a miscarriage. Um, it's very hard to know how common it was because of course the incentive you know it's a very private thing and there were good reasons to try and keep it private but I think what we can definitely say is it, it what it did happen it has always happened to pick up on what you said then about things being behind closed doors in that way you make the point in your book that because of the events that are inevitably recorded perhaps they paint a picture that's somewhat bleaker than the truth and that though you do hear of some violent or bizarre instances most would have fallen somewhere between the two yeah and I think this is a real problem that if you're a lot for a lot of these things all we've got is sort of the prescriptive records of the church and the court records and so you get all the things that went wrong um and I guess I mean where this maybe really comes across is when you try and look at same-sex relations because basically the only really clear cases we've got are in court records where people are being punished um and sometimes you get really you get to get some really interesting cases where you can sort of see in the record there was a sort of a serious long-term relationship going on in here but often it's you know it's the problems it's the people who've got called and so you're left sort of there are some really interesting tombstones for example with two people of the same sex where you might be tempted to go well maybe this is a this is a relationship um but you are yeah largely dependent on on these problematic and, and really hostile sources and that is a yeah, great shame for somebody trying to piece it together. Absolutely. You write that some sources are infuriatingly vague. Yeah, <laughs> that's being a medievalist for you. <laughs> and going back to those tombstones you just mentioned, Richard I is one of those that some have suggested could point to a sexual and romantic relationship. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think with Richard I and it's, is it Philip Augustus of France? I think a lot of that rests on the idea that they shared a bed. And I, 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 that to me seems a tricky one because there's no doubt about bed sharing was really quite common in the Middle Ages and it could very much just be a sign of favour, a sign of political alliance. It's like a lot of the sort of the kissing that goes on, the, you know, the kiss of the peace was a really big thing. Um, and so it's very hard to read things like that. Uh, some of the um, the tombstones, there's, there's one in Istanbul, I think it is, of two 14th century knights who, one of them died, and we, there's a chronicle record as well relating to them, and it says that one of them died, and a week later one of them died of sorrow. Uh, so I mean, there's clearly a very close bond between these men. Is it sexual? We don't know. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of examples. There's a, there's a little brass of two women down in the church on the Kent-Sussex border, Again, seems quite suggestive, but how do we know? I don't think we can. Right, another example of perhaps suspending our modern sensibilities. We've already talked about medieval medicine in terms of contraception or avoiding pregnancy. What was known about sexually transmitted diseases? Um, They were probably sort of a bit less concerned about that than we were. The balance does seem to be the real thing. But they do think that that you know there are certain diseases that can be tr- transmitted that way one of them they're quite worried about is leprosy and particularly again via prostitutes they, they're sort of convinced that if a man has sex with a prostitute uh, he's a leper and the sort of the vapors will sit in her womb and then poison the next man um and there is actually there's a brilliant story from it's the inquisition records in the south of france of a chap who says that when he was a student he went to a brothel and the next day, he had a swollen face, I think, and he thought he'd got leprosy from the prostitute, after which he never had sex with women again, um, which seems quite a drastic solution. But no, definitely it is something they they are concerned about, as well as balance. There's so many ways you can die of sex in the Middle Ages. <laughs> right. And there was also this idea at the time of love magic, the idea that you could sort of coerce someone to your bed via some sort of potion or something. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's all sorts of things you can do. There are stories about women who make really unpleasant sounding potions. Some of them are just herbal. Some of them involve sort of menstrual blood and semen and all sorts of things you probably don't want to drink. Um, there, some people think that if you, when you take communion, you keep to keep the communion wafer in your mouth and then you kiss somebody with the that's still in your mouth, you'll make them fall in love. Then there's all there's all sorts of you know really nasty stuff about demons and wax dolls and incantations and all that sort of stuff. Um, and people do end up in court for it and people do end up in deep trouble because of it. I, interestingly, one of the things that really bothers them about that is not just that it's magic, which to them is a really powerful and dangerous force, and obviously they're worried about it from that point of view, but also this idea of consent again. Actually, you know, they are, they are worried that people are being made to have relationships against their will, and that sits very uncomfortably. Well, on that then, while you've said that medieval sex wasn't perhaps as characterised by violence as we're led to believe in some parts of popular culture today there inevitably was sexual violence. Can we hear a little more about attitudes to that? Yeah, I mean, this was, yeah, probably by far the um, hardest chapter of the book to write because a lot of the material, as you've seen, is is really quite deeply unpleasant. Um, I think probably they did take it more seriously than we think they did. You know, rape is a capital crime in, in parts of Europe in the Middle Ages. Men do end up in court for it. They do get punished for it. They're particularly concerned about cases that involve very young girls or children. Um, And so I think it is something that generally they did share our repugnance at. But at the same time, they are quite reluctant to convict men. Women are made to do really quite horrible things in, in terms of proving 
you know, you have to raise the hue and cry, and as parts of Europe you have to sort of scratch your face and rend your hair. Uh, the conviction rates are horribly low. There's a lot of covering up within the church, within institutions. I don't know. I think one of the things I find most depressing about it actually is how little has changed and, you know, how low the conviction rates still are, how much still gets covered up. And yeah, uh, yeah, horrible stuff. Yes, very challenging history indeed. But I do think that's such an interesting point that there are some medieval attitudes that seemingly do prevail today. The burden of proof, just an example there. Um, and do you think it's fair to say that we shouldn't then necessarily other medieval attitudes to sex quite so much or feel superior somehow that our attitudes are so different? I think so. I mean, I think it does seem to me that they were sort of grappling with a lot of the same issues that, um, you know, yeah, a lot of things that we struggle with, they did that maybe some of the framing around it in terms of the church ideas and some of the medical theory is now very to, to ours. But that ultimately, the, I think there were a lot more similarities than I expected to find. Um, and that some of the some of these sort of individual stories in the, in, in the book, I hope, sort of really chime across the centuries. That was Catherine Harvey. The Fires of Lust, Sex in the Middle Ages is published by Reaction Books and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.